Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur. Uh, you know, he's tired of dragging me up and down the court. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? <laughs> How you doing, Danny? Uh, a little airplane for you on a Friday. How's it going? I, is airplane, is, is that still a pertinent movie to young people? I think so. You know, I think streaming kind of brought it back because I, I always see it available on, on, on what's that? Either HBO or Hulu. So speaking of streaming, uh, a bittersweet day for De La Soul fans. What? We had the passing of a member last week or two weeks ago, um, a founding member. And then today is the unveiling of all De La Soul records now available for streaming, which the record balloon mind state I've been mm. on the hunt for literally since cassette. So happy streaming day for me in that regard. It's a little bittersweet, though. Didn't and didn't De La Soul do the soundtrack for that Spike Lee movie Bamboozle? I think so, right? Uh, we may have moved to the next topic, and I'll Google <laughs> okay. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a that was a controversial film uh, school thing for me. They like showed it and everything like that. But uh, what's up, dude? How's it going? I what's... don't think so because the first thing that comes up here is. Uh, them playing the bamboozle festival so oh, okay. i don't believe All they right. did which is completely different <laughs> a little different than a spike lee film yeah i'll say oh maybe man. the opposite of a spike lee film yeah. is yeah. the bamboozle <laughs> festival or maybe that when we were young festival oh my might gosh. be the tangible opposite of a spike lee movie considering <laughs> i have to imagine that being one of the whitest crowds on earth it seems like the new version of Bamboozle is like exactly like the When We Were Young Festival. They moved it to Atlantic City and stuff like that. But yeah, well, everyone needs a place to yeah. go and make some money, you know. And right. speaking of Atlantic City, since the last time we talked, I got a couple dates coming got up. A date in AC. We're playing some casinos. I love it. Got a casino date in AC, <laughs> a casino date in Bethlehem. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, I mean, much to people's surprise, you don't get paid the day of a show. So it's not like I can take my show earnings and uh, <laughs> drop it on the roulette table. But I will say this. I will do my old classic. If I if I make any money playing the roulette tables, I will leave by betting it on black. OK, that's what I do every time. Big winner. Maybe that's what uh, Elvis and, and, and Frank should have done, and it would have ended up a little bit better for them. Just put it all on black. I'm out. <laughs> I don't know. Those guys, they wound up with quite a fortune. Yeah, I think that's they true. did. Okay. That's true. That's true. Oh, Benny. Well, you know what segment is a for gives us a fortune of gratitude, of money, every time we do it? <laughs> every time. Every time. It's this day music history. Brought to you. <laughs> what do you got? This day in 1986, Metallica, one of the greatest American bands in history, releases Master of Puppets. Now, the great thing about this album, there's no singles, no music videos, and every song is at least five minutes long. I mean, talk about Metallica keeping it real at this time. And somehow it still connects with mainstream audiences to a point, brings metal a little closer to the forefront of uh you know major music narratives it's got master of puppets on it it's got battery on it also cliff burton's last album with the band you know if you go and talk to a old school metallica fan they'll say this is 
when the music died for Metallica. As somebody who was raised more in the 90s than the 80s, and uh, the Black Album was like literally like the Encyclopedia Britannica to me, um, I would like to dispute that. But Classic Record came out on this day, and um, I think you can make an argument that, you know, kept that docket going from Judas Priest to Black Sabbath to, you know, Metallica to Iron Maiden, you know, excuse me, Iron Maiden before, you know, and and kept metal at the forefront of the uh, national consciousness. So I think this is a very important album and just a fucking badass record. It, it's so good. You can still listen to it. I have a little quiz for you also on this. Oh, oh you know, I always I make I didn't want to make music history about Nickelback. <laughs> because you know the obvious but a nickelback album in 2017 is certified diamond for sales of over 10 million copies in the united states jesus christ making them just the fourth canadian act to reach that level can you name the other three canadian artists who went diamond in the united states brian adams no one no wow okay um is uh oh my gosh um, i'll give you yeah. one one hint to keep it moving all female well, i wish that that absolutely helped me because i was gonna go brian adams rush and then who's like the uh oh. you think rush went diamond <laughs> i don't know hey, no I, rush, if, rush half the people who listen to rush go what the fuck is this they weren't that big if brian adams didn't go diamond and you're telling me a all like 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 four women band? What's it? I, you're gonna you're gonna hate yourself. I, Celine I, Dion. Oh, my heart will go on. Shania Twain. Oh, Shania. Alanis Morissette. Oh, oh miss the bangers. You miss the bangers. I was thinking, you know, because you got me in the Nickelback. You got like I I, I was in that headspace. You're in the rock. The rock. Go back party. to your lane. Go back to your absolute lane. All right. <laughs> All right. What do you got? What do you got? <laughs> On this day in 1966 in Los Angeles, Buffalo Springfield was formed among the first wave of American bands to become popular in the wake of the British invasion. The group combined rock, folk, country music into a sound all of its own. Uh, it's it's million selling songs for what it's worth became a political anthem of it during the 1960s. So on yeah. this day in 66, Buffalo Springsfield, Young Stills got together. Important group. Important Very group in that, that Laurel Canyon narrative of everything that happened there. Yeah. I think uh, the farther we get from that scene and the collection of music that came out of it, I think the uh, age is pretty well, as yeah. long as you ignore most of the narratives. <laughs> those get ugly oh man and and we talked a, a, a bunch about that whole error uh when david Crosby passed a few weeks ago you can go back and find that on, on the youtubes and in the podcast archives but anyway benny pushing ahead speaking of the british invasion did not mean to set myself up like this one pretty good almost 60 years since their first meeting it's looking like we're getting a rolling stones Beatles collaboration album on the upcoming Rolling Stones album. That's right. Uh, the Rolling Stones are being joined by Paul McCartney on bass, Ringo on drums. You got uh, producer Andrew Watt putting it, it all together for the upcoming Beatles album. Um, a lot of ways that you can go with this, but uh, what do you make of the Beatles and Stones after all of these years finally being like, you know what? Let's do something together. I like it. You know, and one of the reasons I like it is there's like 
been a historical duel between these two bands essentially for credibility for airtime you know and i think the beatles have always sort of won the credibility battle and that put the rolling stones i mean up until just a few years ago paul mccartney was still talking shit about the rolling stones calling them like just a blues cover band you know and stuff like that which you know partially true the rolling stones to me are one of those bands if you start listening to every record you're gonna get bored but if you start listening to the bangers you can't deny that they have one or two giant swings and hits on most albums yeah but uh you know i wonder how much is gonna be on it you know it sounds like mccartney's on like a song two songs ringo's on a song two songs so I think they'll probably focus more on like one or two singles rather than like an album collaboration. But but excites me. You know, what excites me even more, too, is that apparently Charlie Watts had about six songs already in the pocket for this record. Wow. So it's nice that, you know, Charlie Watts is still going to reappear in the Rolling Stones narrative even after. Yeah, that That was going to be my next question. I wonder, though, Lennon, Lennon might not like. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what this is, is going to sound like. Um, and you know, but also just like props to the Stones and for Mick Jagger for like you know I I've still got more to say because they don't have to say anymore. Like they no. can just count their money. So no, I think it's cool that they're doing new music. Like you've been doing these stadium tours, arena tours for decades now, just kind of playing your hits, and you know. To me, it lays a little credence to them just being real band, real artists. The fact that they want to still go in the studio. This guy, Andrew Watt, is particularly good at resurrecting old dudes. I'll give him a call in about 10 years. Um, and uh, yeah, so 69 sound. No, yeah, 69. I'm sure you haven't heard that one before. Oh, there's a record <laughs> called that. Thank you off with their heads. Um but yeah, I think uh, I think it's exciting. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Very nice. This wasn't on, on the rundown, but I want to throw this by you anyway. Music related. Uh, Kiss just announced, or they announced a while ago, and it's coming closer to the end of the road for them. They're allegedly doing their last two shows at MSG in December. Uh, they started on 23rd Street, ending it at about 33rd Street. Um, is this really the end for Kiss? Do you think? I mean, it seems like it, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like talk about a band who like is not going to make new music and yeah. continue like that. They're sitting on piles of money and merchandising stuff that they can sit on for years and years and years. I know they have that shit locked down. I have a anecdotal story about that. And um, so, yeah, it's probably the end for Kiss. Mm. And that's a good place to end it, you know? bunch of I, long island guys yeah a bunch of long island guys. I, I i wonder how much that catalog would sell for is that in like the huey lewis 20 category or no i think it's, it's higher because yeah, right? we're talking toys cars yeah. Oh, yeah. like potential mm-hmm. video games i've seen kiss pinball machines and shit like all over there yeah they're uh it's it's more than music with kiss i mean i think more often than not, people couldn't name you more than one or two Kiss songs. Yeah, but they could tell you what the cat is and stuff <laughs> like that. So, one of the most effective theatrical productions in rock and roll ever. I can't listen to more than three of their songs back to back, but I do respect the, uh, yeah. the performative aspect of Kiss. The show, the show, the, you know, the for for a long time they were like pyrotechnics. We're gonna blow it out, and now they're like, yeah, we'll, 
We'll save a little bit. Scale move, it back. Move down the Boca Raton. Take it to the golf course now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Benny, you know, we just keep setting ourselves up today. Speaking of taking it absolutely to the golf course, on the, their fourth quarter earnings call, which I can't think of a more boring sentence to start the next story with, uh, Universal Music Group announced that they passed the $1 billion mark in quarter four uh, for music revenue. Um, but on the call, their CEO, Lucas Grange, used the company's fourth quarter investor call to advocate for a new economic model, claiming that Universal is working with its partners to provide a model that provides fair compensation for artists. We'll see how far that goes. Uh, on the call, he said that subscriptions, i.e. investments in uh, that they get from Tidal on Spotify, was half of their income. This begs the question for me, Benny. When it comes to music, as we move to, toward the future here, if the labels are into this, could you see a situation where streaming revenue kind of becomes like YouTube, where, you know, if you have over a thousand subscribers, followers on like Spotify or one of these, that you get about $18 per like a thousand view, like kind of like a, a model like that. I mean, maybe. And yeah. I'd like to see something like that happen for smaller bands, but I mean, I basically have a giant, you know, to listeners, I'm doing the jerk off motion <laughs> when I see something like this because, you know, I've been seeing it for like 10 years and it got heightened and even worse during COVID. The amount of musicians I know, great musicians I know who should be on the road, who should be writing music, who can't, literally can't. And part of it is because of this streaming model they created. So, you know, put this money where your mouth is actually do something that that pays a fair revenue to artists but i think it's um yeah kind of a load of shit and until i see something it sounds like something to fluff up investors on a fucking earnings call so i don't know that's where i'm at on that yeah one. And, and bear in mind, I've been signed to this record label. So yeah. <laughs> the even crazier thing is that they boasted about their 118 million dollars in quarter four in merchandise, where I'm like, how much of that is you either siding with like being a, another hand in the pocket of artists where it's like they've already got to pay something to the venues and Live Nation when yeah. they're selling the merch. And now Universal's gonna come in and take their thing. Exactly. And this is one of you know, this is another thing they benefited from. Like at the time when streaming started booming and actual record sales started decreasing, they introduced 360 deals. Mm. 360 deals were taking young artists and not only buying into their now publishing and licensing, but also their merchandise and their touring. So essentially giving the other forms of revenue that an artist used to be able to control, taking it away from them. I'm, I, you know, being an older artist by the time this came around, uh, I kind of universally rejected 360 deals. And if when Gaslight was signing, if anyone brought that to the table, it was a non starter. Yeah. But if you're 16, you have a pop song and you're like, oh, a record label just, you know, sent me $200,000. People will sign on a lot of lines. And if that artist, you know, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard. If they can get one superstar who's stuck on a 360 deal, then that's an incredible amount of money. So again, jerk off. Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's really sad. I have a lot of love for these kids. I see all the time on TikTok these people that aren't musicians that are like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, here's how I made $20,000 on one song. And they posted like one song on like TikTok and like a video like went viral 
And it's like, but I'm kind of wondering what kind of deals these people are in. And it sounds like they're getting a lot of these like like one hit TikTok people in these 360 deals that they can kind of keep. Yeah. Wrapped and up. honestly, see how long twenty thousand dollars lasts you, <laughs> you know, like it's the real fucking world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, a movie moving over to Hollywood a, a little bit. That's gonna. I feel like it's going to make some money like hand over fist for a little while. And that's the cocaine bear. Uh, we As wanted it to get should. We wanted to get into this last week, but Benny, the Marvel machine has been defeated, at least for one weekend. Uh, Cocaine Bear snorted its way into the hearts and minds of moviegoers this past weekend. On its opening night, it raked in $8.6 million, and that was just on the Friday. To date, as we record this, a week from it opening, $23.3 million. Good. Now, in case you've been under a bear or under a bunch of cocaine, uh, this movie... Under a bunch of cocaine. What is that? I don't know. Keep it going. Uh, in case uh, you haven't heard of this film, this is a story of an oddball group of cops, criminals, and tourists that converge on a Georgia forest where a huge black bear goes on a murderous rampage after unintentionally ingesting cocaine. Uh, the horror comedy is directed by the awesome Elizabeth Olsen. Olsen? Banks. Ben- I'm not sure. Olsen is... A- Elizabeth Banks, 100%. Okay. Elizabeth okay. Olsen okay. is the Marvel lady. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, she's built up quite a film resume for herself. But Benny, um, you know, for me in like middle school and like high school, Snakes on the Plane was the movie that people were like, yes, this is this this generation's Snakes on a Plane. Seems like it. Yeah. And, and I'm here for it. I mean, let's aside. The real story was a bear sniffing a ton of cocaine <laughs> and dying. So way less fun. The actual yeah. story. But. I am here. For, I don't know if you know this about me, Denny. <laughs> There's only a few genres of film I really love. And over-the-top, yeah. intentional B-movie shit put into mainstream movies is one of my favorite things to see. <laughs> I love Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. I love Anaconda. <laughs> I love The Day After Tomorrow. I love Twister. Oh. I love dumb, over-the-top movies that know they're dumb and over-the-top. And this is where Cocaine Bear leaned into it. You know, don't don't pull any punches with the name, with the promo. Like, this is exactly what it is. It's a ridiculous movie about a bear sniffing cocaine. And I'm here for it. Uh, can't wait to see it. I, I can't wait to see it either. Um, the horror comedy mix is like a little bit of left brain, right brain kind of stuff. There a little bit of yin and, and yang. But, uh, you know, the Elizabeth Banks of this all. And that's what I, I can't believe I had that written down wrong. That's so disrespectful. Uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Olsen, I'm pretty sure, is like you know, the Mary-Kate and Ath- Ashley, oh, their I sister. See. Elizabeth okay. Banks is Wet Hot American Summer. Right. So... But, uh, you know, she's putting together quite this career of, of directing. You, you what know, else did she do? There was, I think she's done like six movies at wow. this point. Okay. Okay. In but, addition to, you know, starring in 40-Year-Old Virgin. Right. A uh, whole bunch of other things. Wait, the Elizabeth Banks IMDb. Um, <laughs> but listen, people can do this. Themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can do it themselves. See, I should have done that. We don't have to be uh, on video. I am. Yeah. Be like, let me look at, uh, yeah. at Palvin Caro's like assist to turnover ratio. No, yeah, just kidding. Yeah. But, uh, you know, unbelievable film. Um, you're seeing the tune ups research department. At yeah. hundred percent. Our, our, our research department on crack, not to be, uh, confused with our crack research department, but hundred yeah. percent excited for this film. Uh, and, yeah, you know, let, let's just hope it, it keeps snorting its way up. The, oh, by the way, 
a, a Ray Liotta picture. Ray Liotta's in this because oh, of course Ray is in. That's some postmortem Liotta. Yeah. I think he's got one more film, the film that he was working on when he passed yeah. away uh, in the Dominican Republic. But yeah, so uh, Cocaine nice Bear. To nice to see. I'm here for Cocaine Bear. Oh, well, moving right along because that last one did not move along. Uh, we're going to move into the darkness a little bit and join Mr. Aaron Rodgers up in the Pacific Northwest, where apparently he came out of hibernation. Because apparently the thing to do if you're a top NFL quarterback is, hey, I'm going to go all punks to Tony Phil on my offseason and try to see if there's six more weeks of winter. Um, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm off the prompter <laughs> so hard right now. It's crazy. But uh, anyway, the story is Aaron Rodgers last week was up in a darkness retreat where he was trying to decide about life and what he wants to do next with football. He spent four days and four nights in the dark and came out um, and pretty much said nothing about his football career, but was like, man, I learned a lot about life. You know, we've talked a bunch about Aaron on the show the past couple of uh, of weeks, months about his uh, his, you know, his opinions being immunized and all of that stuff. But uh, this for Rogers, do you think he's trying to build up his mystique or do you think that this is kind of real? I mean, it seems like he actually did it. And listen, I know some people who have done stuff like this. Uh, I talked intimately and toured with somebody who did a couple week long silence retreats and people can go fucking nuts. This is harder than you think. Like, like someone's like, oh, what? You sat in a room for three days. No, 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 no. Like, it's scary. And nobody in the modern world kind of gives themselves a chance to step back and really be in their own head and nowhere else for three days. And like, so, I mean, you know, when I when you try to determine like toughness in the world and stuff like that, like I would literally like to see if you took the general population of the NFL and see how long other people would last in this situation. It's hard and it's weird and it's kind of cool. I think I was almost, I even uh, texted our boy, Rob Domovsky, who has to talk about Aaron Rodgers too much. Yeah. I feel bad for, you know, the fact that he has to talk, speculate on one guy. <laughs> I said, you should start making stuff up and say he counseled with Deepak Chopra <laughs> as well. I think he's going to take that to ESPN soon. It was my <laughs> idea. Um, but like football aside, you know, the ayahuasca retreat and the meditation retreats are the most relatable to a guy like me. Aaron Rodgers has been in quite a long time. Um, I, I have no idea how this affects football in any sense. I have no idea how it affects his decision making. Um, you know, I'm not sure what this guy is up to, but I, I mildly respect somebody who goes into three day blackness retreats because you know, the normal person uh, who's who's not in the right mindset will go crazy in this situation, you know? Yeah. And uh, I 100%, you know, I I struggle with this because I'm like, if you want to do this, why make it so public? I right. think it's kind of cool. You know, I, I've, I've never really heard of, you know, people going like I've heard of the silence retreats, like you said, but the darkness retreats, uh, you know, he talked about laying the food out on his bed so that he knows where where to grab it from um the and the fact that there's like a, a a bed you know like like i don't know if if it's like luxury or if it's like a cot if it feels more yeah like no i mean i'm I'd sure super it's interested comfy. to learn more yeah, yeah i'm sure it's comfy you know and like 
if he's doing it, I'm sure it's the upscale end of a meditation retreat, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I think, I don't know, it's like one of those weird things that I don't mind if a couple people who are football fans and jocks and in general don't consider things like this, start to consider things like this because it can be healthy and it can be revelatory to some people. So I actually uh, don't mind this one. Yeah. About being so public about it. I mean, I'm not sure where that comes from. Like maybe he has an instinct to try to lead people in this direction, or maybe he just loves being guru football guy, you know, like, and, and just trying to lean into his persona. You'll never know with these people, you know, um, that you could speculate on forever, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm here for it. I could use a darkness retreat myself. Oh. Ne- <laughs> next week's tune-up, totally in the dark. In the dark. It's going to be great for the, the visual. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on for two seconds. I think I think Roger Goodell paid for this. Whoa. Allegedly. Why? Allegedly. So why? Okay. What, what's his So impact? the basis for this is the fact that, you know, if you, when you put on all of the talk shows, you know, your, your get-ups, your Skip and Shannons and stuff like that, they're talking about the NFL during a time when in the past they historically have not. Uh, it's been A block and B block on a lot of these debate shows that drive the conversation. Because if you get in the A block and, and all, all of those things on those shows, it'll trickle its way down to local radio. And then you have the people talking about you the same way they talk about the NBA year round. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure Roger Goodell didn't foot the bill on, on this, but the way a lot of these lucrative TV contracts are, are working, you see a lot more NFL conversation right now than you ever have before. I mean, I think it's valid. And, yeah. and anecdotally, I spent, you know, many hours last week listening to WFAN and uh, didn't hear much about the surging Knicks. Yeah. Didn't hear much about, uh, you know, the, the Giants situation with Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. I mostly heard about Aaron Rodgers Crazy. maybe coming to the Jets. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you're correct in the idea that the NFL is trying to follow the NBA's year round drama blueprint and probably smartly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I don't think uh, Roger Goodell has to pay for it, but I do think an internal publicist probably said, eh, yeah, let's make a press release about this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. So a lot of, you know, you see a, a lot of, of that happening. I, I feel like the NHL, had, did you see their trade deadline? I felt like everybody and their brother in the NHL got traded. So you see people like, hey, this is work for the NBA. We're kind of, you know, everybody wants to have the narrative 365 days a year. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mind it at all. So, all right, you mind it, but yeah, yeah. But when when you have like Patrick Kane going to the and like guys who have been franchise guys going everywhere, so there there you go. For those of you that say that we don't talk about hockey enough, there you go. Yeah, you got thirty seconds. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's rude. All right, Benny, to a actual sports story, we kind of had a Mister Three Thousand moment on Thursday night in college basketball with only a handful of seconds on the game clock standing between. Him and Immortality, Detroit Mercy Star, Antoine Davis launched a three-pointer. It clanked off the rim, and and uh, Davis wound up three points shy of Pete Maravich's NCAA Division One career scoring record of 300, uh, 3,667 points. 
um, as Youngstown State won over Detroit Mercy in the Horizon League tournament. This is unbelievable. Uh, Davis is a fifth-year player who entered Thursday's game 26 points shy of Maravich. He needed 26 points to surpass Maravich and finish with 22 in the loss. Um, But a fifth-year player... um, in an era where you can score the ball, especially in college basketball, if, if, if you can shoot, um, the the world is your oyster, so yeah. so to speak. So uh, do you think that this is the closest we're ever going to see to somebody in this era of college basketball uh, approach Pete Maravich? Uh, no, I don't, actually. And I think just because of the way things are moving and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the style of this, I could see someone from another small school being a really prolific three-point shooter, you know, sort of the access to extra points and then leap years and stuff that Pete Maravich didn't have. I mean, this guy's 165 pounds and not apparently even a, you know, an NBA draft prospect. Mm. So, um, yeah, I could see it again. I mean, I'm not to, you know, take down this guy's feet, which is, which is impressive, especially at his size. And I can't, can't say I watch a lot of Detroit Mercy games, but he must be a crafty motherfucker getting that much up, you know? So props to Antoine Davis. I think it's cool. But no, I think in the modern era, which we're approaching and kids growing up on uh, Steph Curry instead of Patrick Ewing, I think we we might we might see more of this. Actually. Yeah, the only the only reason why I say this was the time for it to fall is now all these college basketball players have these like COVID years, and you have like these twenty five year olds that are still somehow playing college basketball. He was a fifth year senior playing for his dad at Detroit Mercy, um, which that's a whole other side tangent. Kids playing for their parents in college. Your thoughts? Oh, great! You, Especially oh, on this level. Yeah, yeah like like okay. you know like. I think, yeah, I have zero problem with that. And I think it's actually good for the people involved and, you know, especially at this level. I mean, but come to think of it, you know, like uniquely, uh, you know, in order to pull off this feat, you kind of have to not be an NBA draft prospect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because if you come in averaging 25 points a game on most teams, that's not your dad. You're either filing for the draft or now transferring to a bigger school. Hmm. Um, so, like, you know, I think that that's where this situation does get unique and and would be hard to pull off because a 25-point game scorer who's not playing for his father is probably not lasting in college as long. So, yeah, yeah. it is kind of unique. Probably very little NIL there at Detroit Mercy. So, yeah, yeah. but it is the Horizon League, which is a, a very good Not league. A bad league, and he's Patrick also Baldwin press Jr. on the yeah. tune-up, which <laughs> brought to you by Costco. So he might get <laughs> he might get some love now. You know, I love it. We've had Horizon League basketball, the NHL. You know, we're we're, we're talking. We're everything. all over the place today. Even Celine Dion got. Oh, Celine! I'm oh, mad, yeah. dude. I'm 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 still pissed that I missed that. All right, <laughs> to the to the professional hardwood. Benny, your guy Kevin Durant made his debut. It, well, first off, is he still your guy? I feel like he's still your guy, right? Honestly, kind of. Yeah. You know, and and all it takes for me is watching Kevin Durant play basketball. Yeah. You know, and it's beautiful. I realized this first game he played was against the Charlotte Hornets, yeah, Charlotte. who, without Lamelo Ball, are I'd say the worst team in the NBA at this point, and totally lost and full on in the Wembenyana sweet stakes. So. I'm not a, you know, 
I'm not putting too much onus on the Suns in this game, but yeah. the thing that's like apparent, you know, overly clear, you know, from his first game and kind of what a lot of people were saying is just put Kevin Durant on a basketball court and he's going to Kevin Durant. And, you know, you watch what he does and he's just fuck. Like <laughs> he might really be the most unstoppable offensive player in the history of basketball. I don't know. I mean, you can make arguments one way or the other, but he's got to be up there and he's got to be in that conversation. And I can't help but root for him. And one of the reasons is Kevin Durant is just like one of those true ballers. You know, he doesn't say much. He doesn't know how to lead. You know, there's a lot of knocks you can make against Kevin Durant, but put that guy between the lines and it's just a joy to watch. And, uh, you know, even though he, he fucked up my season ticket sales and, and, you know, everything else this year, um, yeah, I still kind of am pulling for him. Can't. And we'll get to your nets in a little bit, but I got three KD Suns related questions for you yeah. here. Lay it on. You know, we always talk about chemistry when it comes, especially when guys come in to a team at a, a deadline that rarely works out well. You yeah. know, I, I, I can't imagine, or I, I don't think I've seen a, a situation where a guy comes in mid season and it, and they go to the championship and actually win the thing. Cause teams have been building their chemistry all year long. So, but do you think that the Suns can be the exception to that rule? I do. Yeah, I do. Why? I think, I think because of the player you brought in, yeah, you know exactly what he's going to do. And uniquely, because of the weapons this team already have, they were set up to open people up in the mid-range game, you know, and, you know, that's literally Kevin Durant's forte. You give Kevin Durant a look between 12 and 16 feet, it's almost as automatic as a layup, you know? Um, so I normally I think you're right. I think it's crazy people say mid-season two. It's not. Yes. They got like 20 fucking <laughs> games left. It's you know, the trade trade deadlines, you know, three quarters of the way through the season almost. But I think uniquely this time, um, the the actual chemistry and the fit works. The thing that the Suns fucked themselves with is like, if you had set this team up in the offseason, you would have way less questions from player five to player 12. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the thing that that the Suns could have used a little time to build some reinforcements and get some uh, more players you can count on on the bench. But playing wise, I think this is kind of the exception. Yeah. And visit, you know, it kind of leads right into it. it the DeAndre Ayton situation is going to be very interesting because he was already at odds, you know, with Monty Williams, with, with the Suns organization before all of this, you know, and he, you know, he's put up a, a nice season scoring, do you think he's going to be able to accept that smaller role going back to just be like, like, hey, I'm going to be a rebounder and get the outlet pass out? I'm not sure. I do, actually, because this, again, is one of those situations where life, especially on the offensive end, just got a lot easier for DeAndre Ayton. Like, think about the space. Think about the second looks. Kevin Durant's still a very solid passer, you know, and I think in this offense, DeAndre Ayton's going to get eight to 10 looks a night that are really clean. Yeah. Um, so he's almost like an automatic 20 points a night just by default. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to try to get in the head of that kid, but um, I think he's had a really strong season. Mm. I think he defends Jokic as well as anyone in the league. And um, I think he's a big part of this core four. I don't know. 
if the Suns go ahead with these deals, if they don't have Aiton and Booker on the books, because this is where they're not in a net situation, right? Uh, you know, if things do fall apart, if Chris Paul gets really old real fast, if Kevin Durant wants out again, they still have two guys under 25 that are very, very good players. One of which is a, a generational cap type player. So now I think Aiton's real happy right now. And uh, I think winning and winning on a high level takes that away from from the situation. And if you look back to that Bucks finals, right, what was the thing that happened? You know, they kind of in, in crunch time locked up Booker. Uh, they kind of held up Chris Paul. And then, you know, they had to rely on your like Jay Crowders at, at the right. time um, and your other shooters, your your, your uh, Bridges, your Johnsons to kind of make those shots. Right. And they kind of didn't come up. You replaced that with Kevin Durant. It's game over. Yeah. And that's where, you know, the. The end of the game stuff and those kinds of weapons, I mean, shit, if that doesn't make the Suns extremely dangerous in the West, like, like, cause, cause yeah, you know, last year was basically, okay, Chris Paul, shoot, go ahead. You know what I mean? All we got to worry about is Devin Booker. And now between the two of them and they're going to be finishing games, obviously, like it's, it's one of the more lethal combinations in the NBA for sure. And my last question for you about the Suns. Do you think they can stay healthy? Because KD has a lot of miles on his body already. Uh, Golden State, Nets years, uh, has had some injury struggles this year. Do you think he can stay healthy? And Chris Paul, as a Chris Paul fantasy, you know, GM, he's missed a lot of time this year. So two guys that are kind of been a little bit unreliable. Yeah, I mean, you can't speculate to stuff like that, but I do think that's the giant what if with mm-hmm. the with the Suns is like, you know, the one thing Kevin Durant does, and I'll give him credit for, is he has a good track record of coming back from injury. That's right. True. And coming back at the right time and knowing his health. So without anything new happening, uh, I don't foresee like like one of his previous injuries from the last year or two biting back because he's he's quite good. Yeah at coming back and coming back at full strength. Chris Paul's been a giant wild card health wise ever since he was on the Clippers. And, you know, it's obviously a huge problem, but now does it matter as much? That's the one thing I wonder about Kevin Durant is like, can you, can the Suns survive certain series now without Chris Paul because of adding Kevin Durant? Like, do you just need, a general table setter out there, someone to get the ball up, someone to move it ahead and let these guys do work. I mean, partially Chris Paul yeah. still be on the bench as assistant coach, holding people accountable, which might be his biggest job on the Suns right now. Um, so I do wonder about that. Like, like, you know, having Kevin Durant makes a Chris Paul injury a lot easier to tolerate. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I got to walk back the Kevin Durant unreliable. I mean, the guys was was out there for the Nets when nobody else was. So I I didn't exactly mean that. But anyway, (laughs) Uh, you know, we we talked about the Nets. Let's move it over to MSG. Uh, Knicks are on an absolute run right now. Uh, We don't get enough Knicks talk uh, on this podcast, so I hear. But uh, and (laughs) one uh nba legend is buying into jalen brunson and the knicks and that's charles barkley he is drinking the kool-aid so hard the surging knicks have won seven in a row 10 of their last 12 with brunson leading the charge um barkley said on thursday 
on Inside the NBA that Jalen Brunson is arguably one of the best free agent pickups in NBA history. What he's done this year has been historical. Um, you know, they gave him a $104 million contract over four years this past offseason, where we even on, on this podcast were like maybe overpaid for Jalen Brunson. Uh, just no, you off- said that. Uh, I, <laughs> I will roll this all the way back. I will stop the show. We will go. No, just kidding. Um, but you know, at, at the time, you know, the, the talk was like, I don't know, Jim Brunson, a guy who had a great playoff series when Luca was out, um, but they gave him the four year, hundred four million dollar contract. And it is looking like they underpaid at this point. Yeah. So do you think Barkley is right? Did the, uh, is Brunson one of the best pickups ever? I mean, that that's tough to say, especially this early on. We haven't even hit the playoffs yet. You know what I mean? So if uh, Jalen Brunson fizzles out in a first-round series and and never gets to this height again, then of course not. So, you know, that, that's, you know Barkley's got to sell TV ads. Like, he's got to make very, very bold statements. You know, that's, that's his job. Um, but I will say... I don't think the Knicks, you know, it's like when the Knicks are bad and the Knicks are a dumpster fire, people are so quick to jump on them. Oh, this organization again, they've done it again, this and that. And when they are good, you know, it seems like, oh, okay, the Knicks are good. Like you got to give the Knicks in their front office a lot of credit right now for a bunch of good moves in succession that have put the Knicks in this situation now. Like, you know, that Randall deal all of a sudden doesn't look as bad as it did last year. Brunson's very reasonable. Uh, Barrett, you know, polarizing player, but not on an awful deal and an important player. Josh Hart pickup was huge. Keeping on to, you know, holding on to quickly, like a former Knicks team would have dumped quickly and a pick and brought in some old man to try to push the needle more. And now they're not. And he's turned into a real you know, Clarkson-esque uh, proper six man, you know, scoring punch off the bench. Hartenstein, good signing, you know. So uh, talk about, you know, drafting Grimes late, you know, yeah. getting rotational pieces out of the late parts of the draft is is another huge part of this. So I really think you got to give the Knicks a lot of credit. I think once they shortened up the rotation and, you know, really started leaning on eight or nine guys there, um, you know, they've been... Uh, incredibly strong, good defensively. Brunson is a huge clutch guy, you know, um, which is big because I hate what Randall does late in games. And uh, I think the Knicks have put themselves in a really strong position. I don't think they're in that top tier. I think Boston and Milwaukee, which we'll get to later, are still the, you know, the cream of the East that everyone else has to get through. But if you want to tell me the Knicks give Cleveland a hard time in the first round, you want to tell me they give Philly a hard time in the first round. Okay. Yeah. I could see it. Um, and, and it's, it's nice to see, honestly, you know, I'm a Nets fan, but I'm not a Knicks hater. <laughs> I got Knicks blood in my family. I like when they're good. Uh, the garden is one of the most rocking places ever, maybe in history for a playoff basketball game. It gets intense in there. And, uh, I think the Knicks are a lot of fun. And I think, I think the stuff people were saying about Brunson early was fair. You know, you, he was behind Luca. You didn't know exactly what he was going to do with, with a bigger role, especially with his size and speed. You could have seen it gone South, you know? Um, I personally sat on this show and did say 
it was a good signing by the Knicks, and I think the Knicks have a nice year ahead of them. So you can find the tape <laughs> on that if you'd like. Um, but no, I, th- I don't know about one of the best free agent signings in history, but literally prying this guy away from a Luka Doncic-led team you know, to leading his own team in the East to, to probably a four or five seed is, is really impressive. And uh, yeah, I'm here for the Knicks. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And the important thing, I think that Leon Rose and World Wide West did, they built, they brought in Tom Thibodeau and then they built the Tom Thibodeau team. And Jalen yeah. Brunson is a guy who, you know, we've seen in, in every tip stop, he needs a point guard like this that absolutely goes off and has a borderline MVP caliber season. And he got that and he got a, a young guy. Then you bring in Josh Hart, who's been great on, on defense. This has been an, an this has been a, a Tibbs team and they're getting a Tibbs team like result. Now, what that means for playoff success, I'm not quite sure. But for right now, you know, let's just enjoy it before we start talking about Nick's deep playoff run aspirations. I mean, I think before a deep playoff run, like we might get a four or five matchup of Cleveland, New York. Yeah. The the place the the Knicks spurned Donovan Mitchell yeah. or whatever happened there. And now he's gonna come back and play in the garden like he wanted to. That's a great first round narrative and a really great first round matchup that I'd be looking forward to seeing. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Can't wait for that. As we move to the top of the Eastern Conference, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks are on a bit of a tear, 16, 16 straight Ws, but they aren't quite in historic territory yet. By winning their 16 straight game on Wednesday, they joined a group of 34 NBA teams in history with streaks at least that long. That list goes down very, very quickly. Only 24 teams have reached 17 in a row, and only 17 have reached 18 wins. Um, by the time you get to 19 wins, there's only 10 teams and at 20, you're down to single digits. So, you know, they're on the board, they're on the precipice of a, a historic achievement, you know, almost like a, uh, warriors 2015, 2016, or even earlier than that run right there. Um, but this run, you know, at, at a time where, you know, like Giannis has been injured, they're getting Middleton back. What's impressed you most during this run? I mean, I think the fact that a fair number of those games have been won pretty much with Drew Holiday putting this team on his back. And if we talk about bad trades all the time, we love to talk about bad trades. We never talk about good trades. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that Drew Holiday one was was massively spurned when it happened. Nobody at the time was really seeing Drew Holiday as a guy who can lead a team. And what he's done in the last couple months, potentially, I don't know, he might be an all-NBA player this year based yeah. on that. Um, so I think that's been the most impressive part about this run is the fact that it wasn't on the back of a historic Giannis 16 games or Middleton coming off the bench and playing 20 minutes, you know, like, um, it was based on what this team does, which is great coaching, interesting defense, Brooke Lopez being a, you know, the, 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 the catcher out there sitting back and telling everybody what to do and clearly doing a good job. So I, I love it, and I think it's uh, encouraging for, for the Bucks moving forward, especially watching Jock Crowder come out here and actually playing uh, good minutes and, and important minutes, which are going to matter um, coming into the stretch run, for sure. And you know what's been impressive to me? 
Grayson Allen during this stretch, man. I don't know where this guy came from. This guy like cocked back and like threw it down the other day. Like, <laughs> when did Grayson Allen develop hops and like be over 40% three-point shooter? It's absolutely crazy right now. Yeah. And you know, and they're gonna they're gonna need players like that, you yeah. know. Like, um, they're gonna need guys that you can just pop out to in the playoffs. You know, any good playoff series is going to need a random guy to drop five or six three pointers in a game in one game to get them over the hump. And I think Allen fills that role pretty well, barring he doesn't, you know, trip anyone or do anything uh, sketchy up until that point. Javon Carter's look great. They're, yeah. re- they're reportedly uh, could sign Dragic from the Bulls. We saw him up close and personal. Um, yeah, you know, you know, and they added Jay, uh, bring bring the Marquette guy home. So yeah, they're they're slowly assembling a team. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the Brooke Lopez situation there has been awesome. You know, he's slowed down his game. And and is like he can sometimes be a pick and pop guy, but he just like glides around the floor and is always open. Fascinating what they've been able to do. And you're absolutely right. You can't take anything away from Drew Holiday. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, my Marquette Golden Eagles won the regular season Big East championship. No, you're feeling Bucks good. 16 in a row. I'm nervous now. <laughs> good time. Good time to be in Milwaukee. Uh, but let's focus this back on the top of the Eastern Conference. Um, you know, I, I, I know we can fall subject to recency bias, but are you taking the bucks as currently constructed over Boston? Uh, it's, I mean, it's really tough. Yeah. Boston's so great. Tatum's so great. They're, you know, arguably the deepest team in the league. Now that you got, you know, white and Brogdon and, and these players coming off the bench for the Celtics, they got so much pop all over. Hauser's been nice. Um, it, it's still tough and, and I hate to, to pick because I think it's going to be, uh, if they wind up seeing each other in the playoffs, I think it's going to be, a you know, determined by a sperm tail. It's going to be a close one, a big toe away from something, you know? Um, but push comes to shove. I got, I'm not, it's, it's, I don't think you get anywhere betting against Giannis. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think he's, uh, Lost two straight MVPs, you know, didn't have, um, didn't get where, where he wanted to last season. I think, I think Giannis has something to prove again, you know, and I think he's really on a tear. And I think if, uh, you keep Lopez holiday and Giannis healthy through the playoffs, push come to shove, I still take the bucks. And, you know, I still think arguably whoever comes out of the East is probably the best team in the NBA, one of those two teams. And we're getting into my favorite season where it's best player in the series, normally wins the series thing. And this year, you know, you be unless he's going up against like Jokic or, you know, KD, it'd be hard pressed to pick against Giannis right now. So you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, that's oh. a fact. All right, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune podcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. Uh, if you want to follow us on all the social platforms, that is the tune up HQ on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Oh, oh my goodness, for the li- for the listening audience, the dog is in the picture. Oh my god, what wow. a good boy that absolutely is. Oh my goodness. All right, stay focused, Dan. Uh, if you want to follow <laughs> the big man on Instagram, he is at Benny Horowitz. I'm at Denny Gallagher on Instagram. Uh, anything else you guys got over there? Uh, Wally says, everybody well, love everybody. That's uh, his vibe. The, sh- the show has ended. Go in peace. You've been listening to and watching The Tune-Up.